and the story, the story begins. begins. Let's do it, friends. Okay, we are on page 12. Uh, two weeks ago, we didn't have class last week. We got to live the message of the sitter instead of study it with Purim, the joy of Purim. But prior to that, we learned about the mitzvah of love your fellow as yourself. We then move on to a well-known prayer called Matovu, which is the second, uh, right, right after that one liner on page 12. It's the first full paragraph on page 12. Let's read it in English. It's three verses from various parts of the Tanakh. And we'll discuss them soon. We'll discuss the significance, the context, the meaning, and how this is relevant to our relationships, our relationships with people, relationships with God. Let's read it in English first to get an idea of what's going on. This is where the morning prayers formally begin. It, it's still the preliminary part of the prayers in the sense that we're one praying with a minion. This, these parts of the prayers are still done alone. But the meat of the prayers are now formally beginning, although it's still preliminary. How goodly are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. And I, through your abundant kindness, come into your house. I bow toward your holy sanctuary in awe of you. May your, my prayer to you, Lord, be at a propitious time. Did I pronounce that right? Very good. Yes, you did. Okay. Woo. I, I, I was looking at the Hebrew when I, when I prepare for this class, and I, I never even seen that word before. Okay. <laughs> God, in your abound, abounding kindness, answer me with your true deliverance. Okay. So these series of verses, when did they creep into the sitter? It's not one of the classics like the Shema or the, uh, the Amida. At what point was it did it make its way into the sitter? This was the so once the Talmud was formally um, sealed, the Talmud is essentially a let's take a step back. You have the Mishnah, right? We learned a Mishnah a couple of weeks ago. Right? The Mishnah is brief, um, a brief recording of the oral law, a synopsis of the oral law of Judaism as handed down from Mount Sinai. The Talmud are discussions trying to understand the Mishnah, trying to understand the oral law, debating back and forth, giving context. The Babylonian Talmud, let's say roughly 1,800 years ago, the Babylonian Talmud was concluded. They put an official seal in it, no more contributors. It's full. It's done. <laughs> Um, shortly after that, you have many commentaries on the Talmud, trying to explain it and understand it. You have Rashi, you have many, you have many others. But prior to the majority of commentaries in the Talmud, you had a small era in time of people called Geonim. So a group of people called Geonim, called geniuses. And although they were not formal contributors to the Tanya, to the Tanya, to the Talmud, Freudian slip. No, I'm kidding. Although they were not formal contributors to the Talmud, they were considered to be authorities in interpreting Talmud because they were the closest generation post-Talmud. They still lived in Babylon and were most familiar with the Babylonian language, Aramaic, which the Talmud is written in. 
and uh, the, it's actually the first a formal version of the Siddur that we know of comes from this time period of the Geonim, of the geniuses. And they established reciting these verses prior to prayer. Right, let's start with the first one. Matovu, how goodly. I didn't know goodly was a word. Are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. So before coming into the synagogue, let us experience how fortunate we are to be able to enter a synagogue. And if we're not praying at the synagogue, we're praying at our home, then we're creating the sacred space of prayer at home. How fortunate are we to have this space of prayer? In other words, let us absorb the holiness of the location in which we are praying. There was a Hasidic, a Hasidic Rebbe, the Rebbe of Mechelnik. His name was Rebbe of, of Mechelnik. Say that six times fast. <laughs> he used to say that the entrance of a shul is like the border of a country where you do customs. Made at customs, you, you have a uh, border agent, customs agent, customs and borders, and they decide what you're allowed to bring into the country and what you need to leave behind and not bring in the country. Certain things when you're entering certain countries, you know, don't bring in fruits and don't bring, leave them behind. When you enter the synagogue, there's certain things we need to leave behind. Destructive, destructive thoughts, distracting thoughts. Thoughts that are harmful toward our spirituality, toward our spiritual growth, toward our relationships. The fact that we're walking to the synagogue, this is an opportunity to leave this all behind. And the reminder is, th this is a reminder when we say these are the tents of Jacob, the dwelling places of Israel. This is a sacred space we're about to enter. And if we're not literally going to the synagogue, we're praying at home. Our home could be that sacred space for positivity, for spirituality, for divinity. What is the original source of this verse? In other words, where does it appear in the Bible? What is the context of this verse? So if you look at the, um, at the prayer itself, at the end of the first verse, there's a little two there. How goodly are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel, Matovu, O Yaakov, right? There's a little number two there. See the number two? Takes us all the way to the bottom of the page. Numbers 24.5. The book of Numbers. There was an evil king named Balak. Who's familiar with Balak? As it right, the evil king Balak didn't like the Jewish people, and he went to a prophet, a wicked prophet, a non-Jewish prophet. There were non-Jewish prophets, believe it or not, Bilam. And he says, "Bilam, you're a spiritual person, a spiritual." and holy are not necessarily the same thing, right? The demons are spiritual <laughs> and people are holy. So spiritual and holy are not always synonymous. Often they are. We use them synonymously often. So he was a spiritual person and he was a prophet. And he said, go curse the Jewish people. And God didn't let him. And he and as evil and as wicked and as much as he hated the Jewish people as well, he literally wasn't able to curse the Jewish people to the point that he tried and a blessing came out. He tried cursing the Jewish people. A blessing came out. Balak said, hey, I hired you as a hitman to kill him, to curse him, and you blessed him. What's going on here? He says, I don't know, man. I, I got to follow God's rules. That's the way it is. 
And part of the blessing he gave the Jewish people was this exact verse. We're reading how goodly are the tents of Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. It's essentially his observation of the Jewish people, a positive observation of the Jewish people. And the commentaries on the Torah there have various interpretations of what the tents and dwelling places of the Jewish people are referring to. Some say it's referring to the Beit HaMikdash as well as the Mishkan. Some say it's referring to, in general, the land of Israel, referring to the synagogue. Rashi's interpretation is it's literally referring to our homes. What is unique about a Jewish home? Rashi quotes the Midrash. What, what, is, what is so outstanding um, about a Jewish home? So the way a home, a Jewish home, is constructed in a Jewish community, although you wouldn't think this is the case, but this is the halacha, you're not allowed to build windows across from somebody else's window or doors across from somebody else's door. Why not? Anybody familiar with this law, this, this halacha in Jewish law? So uh, I've heard of it. Right. So if somebody builds a house and they have this beautiful bay window uh, and I have decided, hey, I would I live four feet away from them. I would love to carve out a window right there. And now I have a front uh, view of what's going on in their home. It's a breach of privacy. It's a violation of halacha. Because halacha demands that we respect people's privacy, we respect people's living quarters, and part of the um, value of the home is the privacy that one benefits from it. And this is essentially ruining their lifestyle, cramping their style, if you will, and ruining the value of the home. And it, it's a breach of halacha. A Jewish value is the homes, the windows don't align with one another. Although in some Jewish communities, they say every time you buy a home, the front window comes with a nose that sticks out of the curtains. <laughs> okay, it's just a joke. Sometimes we like to be nosies, right? That be little nosy likes to be entas. Jews like to like to to have to talk. But Bilam. This evil prophet observed Jewish homes and he saw, wow, their homes are not, they're not looking at each other. They respect each other's space. Beautiful. Right? And he praised and blessed the Jewish people on that account. There's a deeper interpretation here, though. Essentially, what happens is you know, there's two interpretations of what the tents of Israel are referring to. Again, it's referring to our homes not aligning, giving each other space. It's also referring to the tents, referring to the synagogue. We often have two personalities. There is the me at home, and there's the me at shul. The me at home and the me at shul are often different. At shul, I dress a certain way. At shul, I behave a certain way. At shul, I may even think a certain way. At shul, I'm closest to my ideal self. I'm closest to what my soul wants. At home, unless I really uh, put in the effort, but the default is I'm closest not to my ideal self, I'm closest to my comfortable self. 
my animal soul, not my divine soul, right? In Tanya lingo, <laughs> at shul, I'm com- I'm, I have my, my uh, divine souls being exercised at home. My animal souls being exercised by default, unless I really make my home um, a place for God. And we put in that effort. But there's a discrepancy between the me at home and the me at shul. And what Bilam noticed is these Jews come to shul. And they're not looking at each other's windows. They're not looking at each other's comfortable selves. They're looking at each other's ideal selves. Their windows are not aligning. They're not looking at the body. They're not looking at each other's challenges. They're looking at each other's true selves. To that, he says, how goodly are the tents of Jacob, the dwelling places of Israel. Their windows don't align. They're not looking at the negativity within each other. They're looking at the positivity within each other. They're looking at each other's ideal selves. And internalizing that as a true identity rather than their quote unquote comfortable selves, which may be far from ideal. It's for this reason that we recite this right after the paragraph of, I hereby take upon myself the mitzvah, love your fellow as yourself. There was a connection. But I, I, I want to just I want you to think about this for a second. What a beautiful way to start davening. Realize the beauty of the Jewish people. And although this may not reflect the reality because uh, all the time, we do have challenges. We do have a Yetzirah. But this is the ideal of a Jew. We look at another Jew and we see their ideal self, not just their comfortable self. We see not whom you are comfortable being, but I see who for whom you should be. Your soul. And when we see that within each other, we encourage each other. This is a beautiful way to, to, to daven, to start davening, because that's how Hashem, I want Hashem to see me. <laughs> I would love for Hashem to see me, respect me uh, as my ideal self, and not judge me for being my comfortable self. And if we do that to each other, our prayers, that's why we said love your fellow is essentially the gateway to prayer. Let's take a look at the next verse. In the English, it's on the second line. And I, through your abundant kindness, come into your house. I bow toward your holy sanctuary in awe of you. I'm going to read the Hebrew because I think it's, it, it's going to make more sense in Hebrew, and I'll translate. It's line number one toward the end of the line, right after the two dots, two little diamond dots. See that? After the little number two. Va'ani and I. Berov chasdecha, with your great kindness. Rov means great. Chasdecha, your kindness, like chesed. Avo beitecha, I come to your home. God's home, the synagogue, or this place that we're dedicating as prayer to, uh, for prayer. I bow to your holy sanctuary out of awe. I recently read a beautiful interpretation of this verse. This is from the book of Psalms. Right? Through your abundant kindness, I'm able to praise God. I'm able to bow to him. I'm able to bow to you. I'm able to pray to you. There was a Hasidic Rebbe Named Rabbi Nachman of Breslev. David, you said you have a cousin who's a uh, a, a um, 
a chassid of the breast liver chassidim, right? Right. Frank, talk to him today. Oh, okay. Yeah, he told me I should be uh, studying uh, Jewish, uh, the code of Jewish law. Okay, awesome. Told me to get, get my... Uh, Get me myself together here. <laughs> so <laughs> it's it's good advice. It is good advice. Rabbi Nachman of Breslev. Rabbi Nachman founded the Breslev branch of Hasidim. I, I, I hate to make Hasidus and Hasidim and Jews sound corporate <laughs> with different branches. It's different approaches. We all have one God. We all have one Torah. With different flavors, different spices, different attitudes. Rabbi Nachman of Breslev is buried in Uman, Ukraine, which is uh, usually, it's, it can be interesting what happens this year, but usually on Rosh Hashanah, thousands and thousands, I mean like dozens of thousands of Jews flock there for Rosh Hashanah. And there's a big scene there. It's supposed to be very inspiring. Rabbi Nachman of Breslev, just to give historical context, was a grand, great-grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, who founded the Hasidic movement. Rabbi Nachman of Breslev had so many teachings, inspiring teachings. He didn't write many of them down. For the most part, I don't think he wrote anything. But he had a student that was kind of his transcriber and orator. His name was Rabbi Nassan of Breslev. So a lot of the teachings of Rabbi Nachman of Breslev came through Rabbi Nassan of Breslev. And here's how Rabbi Nassan of Breslev used to interpret this, this verse. Here's what he used to say. He would say, Va'ani and I, right, going to the beginning of the verse. And he would put a big comma there. Me? I? Who am I? That's how he used to read the verse. And I, me? <laughs> like almost with a rhetorical question mark. <laughs> I'm worthy. I'm worthy of prayer, right? How often do we do we have this imposter syndrome when we come to pray? Who am I? What? How am I deserving of this? Who am I to be in the synagogue? Home is my comfortable self. Synagogue is my ideal self. And often there seems to be a tension between the two, and that's when the Yetzer Hara starts imposing its imposter syndrome uh, attitudes on us. And we feel like a faker. I'm going to start praying to God. <laughs> I haven't been living life consistent with this, or I've been doing things that are inconsistent with, with uh, the values and the God whom I'm speaking to. How am I going to talk to God? That's how he would interpret the word I and I and me. What? Unpack all that and what that one word of Ani and me. How am I going to approach God? And the answer is, keep reading the verse, through your abundant kindness. Let's stop thinking about how unworthy we are. And let's start remembering how kind God is. Through your abundant kindness, I come into your house. And I bow toward your holy sanctuary in awe of you. Yes, I'm in an environment where this is my ideal self. And yes, there may be tension between my ideal self and my comfortable self. I'm still bowing before you. I'm still coming to your synagogue. And you're going to accept this, God. Maybe not because I'm worthy, but because you're kind. Even if we were worthy, there's limits to our worthiness. 
There's no limit to God's kindness. Better rely on God's kindness than our worthiness. And that's what it says in the Shulchan Aruch, in the Code of Jewish Law, when it talks about the laws of prayer. It says, don't come from a point of view of, God, this is what I deserve. We never want to get what we deserve. Trust me. <laughs> come from a point of view of that, God, you're kind, you're merciful. Verse number three. You're with me? Before we move on to verse number three, any questions, comments, thoughts, controversy, or reflections? Okay. Verse number three, also from the book of Psalms. May my, I'll read it in English and then we'll do the Hebrew and again translate it again. I, I, the Hebrew for me is easier to interpret, connect with. So I hope that's okay. We'll start with the English. May my prayer to you, Lord, be at a propitious time. How do we translate propitious? A desirable time. I think that's what in Hebrew it says, eight ratzon, a time that's desirable. Does that make sense? Propitious? Yeah. Okay. God, in your abounding kindness, answer me with true deliverance. Okay. And uh, simply put, God, let my prayers be accepted. Let this be an auspicious time for my prayers to actually mean something, to be answered. But there's a deeper meaning to this verse following the theme we've just discussed. Let's go back to the beginning of the verse. In the English, it's right after the little number three. In Hebrew, it's also on the left of the little number three, the second to last line, va'ani, and me. Again, same question, me. Who am I? <laughs> Who is me? How am I going to connect? Tefillati, my prayer. Again, um, there is a, um, we have to be careful of translations. We translate it as prayer, right? Tefillah. But tefillah also can mean connection. And me, my prayer, my connection, my tefillah, also from the word tefillin, which means connection. My connection. How do I, who am I going to connect to? Lecha Hashem, I'm going to connect to you, God. I'm going to connect to you. And when I connect to you, now this becomes. Hold, hold, hold on one second. Hold on one second. I'm sorry. Okay, sorry about that. When I connect to God, not just when I pray to God, when I connect to God, now I've created this moment to be desirable before God. We're not only saying, God, may this time, may this moment be desirable before you, may my prayers be accepted. That's the simple meaning. But what we're saying is, God, I'm connecting with you now. The result the time in which we're in now will be desirable before God. We've created this auspicious moment just by connecting to God. And you know what that does? Elohim, God, in your abounding kindness, will answer us. There's different words for God in Hebrew, different names of God, representing different attributes. 
and, and but it's even more than that. The reason why there's different names of God. You know what it's like? Imagine you're the owner of a company. And in that company, you're going to wear different hats. You'll have different titles. You're the CEO. You're the manager. You're the chef. You're the janitor. <laughs> you're wearing all these different hats. You have all these different jobs. And with each title comes a different angle, a different relationship, a different channel. Right? So God has different names because there's different channels to reach him. When we use the name Elohim, which is the third line of this paragraph, toward the end of the paragraph, that's the channel of discipline, not of kindness. That's the channel with which God seems to interact with the world in a very natural way, where things seem natural rather than miraculous. That's coming from the divine name Elohim. In fact, Kabbalists explain that the divine name Elohim has the same numerical value as the Hebrew word Hateva, which means nature, suggesting that there's a connection between the two. It goes even further. The Hebrew word Hateva, nature, you know what it literally means? It means to be swallowed up, to drown. It seems to drown the godliness. Despite that, because we've connected to God and made this moment auspicious, Elohim, this divine channel of discipline, is going to be berov chastecha, is going to be with abounding kindness. In summation, that last verse. And I, Va'ani and I, Tefilati, my connection is to you, God, which makes this moment auspicious. We have the ability to make this moment auspicious just by connecting to God, by praying to him. And now what may seem as a divine channel of nature, of discipline, is actually going to be a divine channel of kindness. It's going to transform the pipelines, <laughs> open the pipelines for greater blessing. Now, we just recited three verses here. Verse number one, which talks about how beautiful the tents of Jacob are, the dwelling place of, of Israel, right? Essentially, he's talking about the beauty of a, of a Jew, how beautiful a Jewish person is because their true identity is how they are at the synagogue, how they are at the tents, and how they are at the dwelling places, not how they are at home. And when, as Rashi says, our doors are not aligned. <laughs> We're not looking at each other's dirty laundry. We see past that. We see the beauty. The second verse talks about how beautiful the idea of having a place to pray is. Despite my deficiencies, I'm able to come to the synagogue and bow before God. doesn't matter who I am. doesn't matter who you are. Everybody can come to a show and just have a conversation with God. There's a famous story that we read about on Rosh Hashanah with Chana. Remember Hannah, who was begging for a child because she was barren, and she came to the Holy of Holies. She came to the Mishkan. She came to the tabernacle and beseeched God for a child. Everybody could come to synagogue and just pray, pour our heart out to God. So now we're, we're, we're praising the location of prayer. 
And finally, this last verse, our prayers, our connection to God that we initiate creates an, um, create, makes the moment that we're in auspicious, transforming divine channels of severity and discipline into divine channels of kindness, relinking the pipelines, essentially ex um, highlighting the beauty of prayer. So we have the Jew praying, we have the location with where with which he where he prays, and we have the prayer itself. And when we have all of these, and we could truly make that meaningful, go through these meditations in the morning. Then we could finally get to the next prayer, the next paragraph, which we'll elaborate on next week. The Adon Olam, the famous Adon Olam prayer. Adon Olam means master of the universe. We could appreciate how God truly is the master of the universe. And we could truly understand this profound prayer, which we'll do more of next week. But for now, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs>